So welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we have a luminary, a visionary, an intellectual, all of those great adjectives that I can use to define him. One of my good friends, Charlemagne the God, swears by Malcolm Gladwell, but we're happy to have him here on the show. How are you doing today? I'm well. I didn't know you were friends with Charlemagne. South I guess Carolina. it makes sense. He's yeah. South Carolina. He's South Carolina. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, we stay really close. Me and Charlemagne talk every day. We can't tell you. We can't tell you about our group chat, but yeah, we talk. We talk every day. <laughs> so look, we'll, I, everyone. I would kill to be a group chat. <laughs> uh, everyone knows who you are, so I'll jump right into one of your newer projects with your podcast, Revisionist History. But before we dive in, tell people about why you've done Revisionist History, and what makes this podcast different from the hundreds of podcasts that are out there. Well, it's not a, um, first of all, it's not an interview show. It's a narrative podcast. So these are, I do 10 a year and it takes me six months, seven months to do them. So there, a lot of work goes into them. Um, I try and tell very, um, you know, there's stories and complex stories in many cases about things that I think are important or funny or interesting or weird about, often about American society. Um, and I did it because... I just, I love audio. I think there's something wonderful about telling someone a story through their ears. Um, it's, they're much more open, I think, to, you can, you can, you know this, if you've, you've had a podcast for a while, you know, you know, there are, there's things you can talk about when you're talking that you can't talk about when you're writing, right? That's, that's the thing I didn't understand until I started doing it. And that's what I've been trying to kind of, um, uh, make the most of in my podcast. Definitely. Let's talk about your eighth season, which you've committed to talking about what this country gets wrong about guns, which obviously is a lot. We are now on the heels of this shooting in Jacksonville um, and the revisionist history around guns. First, why is this the topic for season eight? A couple of reasons. I, you know, I, I just had a couple, you know, I tend to do stories on things where I find myself having um, conversations on a common theme and I, it starts to kind of come together in my mind, but a couple of kind of random things I was talking to people about that really got me going. One was I just had a conversation with a random conversation with a trauma surgeon. And this actually was the genesis for the whole thing. And he was telling me about the central fact of trauma surgery is how much better we've gotten at that over the last 30 or 40 years. There's no comparison. You know, things things that would have killed you without question 40 years ago, now you're mm -hmm. walking two weeks later. You may be was, my sister says that you, you have a higher probability now, she's a medical doctor, of being disabled than dying. Exactly. Oh, yeah. In fact, this is a whole side question about one of the things that people don't think about when they think about homeless populations is a lot of the men who are homeless are vets who in an early era would have died on the battlefield. And instead what happened is they, their lives were saved, but they're disabled or they're mentally ill and they're brought home. And we haven't realized that you have to take care of people, um, not just immediately, but thereafter. Anyway, the, I got, was talking to these guys about how much better it got. And it made me realize something that I'd heard little whispers of, but no one had ever kind of spelled it up for me, which is, the murder rate, the homicide rate in the country is a function of two things. It's a function of the underlying level of violence, but it's also a function 
of how good doctors are at saving your life once you've been shot. And so if we, we see falling homicide rates, as we have over the last 30 years in this country, is it because there's less violence? Or is it because the doctors are doing a better job of saving people after they've been assaulted? Mm. And it's really unclear which it is. It's a little bit of both, but a lot more. It has a lot more to do with how good our healthcare is than how much less our violent our streets are. And the second thing that comes from that is you realize, oh, that a homicide rate is a function of how good and close a trauma center is to you when you're shot. Right. And that was a huge revelation because I realized that one of the many burdens that we place on African-Americans, for example, in this country is that uh, if you're black and you're shot, you're, someone did this study in Chicago. If you're black and you're shot in Chicago, you're traveling on average miles more to a trauma center than you are if you're white. And if you're traveling miles more to a trauma center, your odds of survival are substantially less. So it's like just another kind of way in which uh, this kind of inequity between uh, the races is built into the systems that we have in this country. That's sort of, that, that I, I explore that at some length in this podcast series, sort of radicalized me. Because I hadn't, I'd never thought about the idea that where a hospital is or where a trauma center is, yeah. is the result of a whole set of decisions that may be incredibly biased or be infected by, uh, affected by, uh, you know, systematic choices that are not treating everyone the same. You've been writing and talking about the topic of guns, particularly school shootings for some time. Give us the upshot of why we see so many school shootings in this country. And even more importantly, inversely, why so little has been done to effectively stop them in your view? Yeah. Well, the first thing to say is that, you know, as a, our gun problem in this country is so large that mass shootings as a percentage of overall shootings are tiny. I mean, they're, I think it's 1% or 2% of the number of, People shot believe, in this a country. Mass, shot a mass country. shooting. A mass shooting is defined by four more casualties, right? Four or more. It happens very rarely. I mean, it, it's dwarfed by, but nonetheless, it doesn't happen in the same numbers um, elsewhere in the world. And you know, there's a million reasons which we can all, some of which we're very familiar with. One is that these kinds of things are contagious. That um, you know, there are you know the the Columbine, the number of school shootings that were in some way linked to Columbine is extraordinary. But those guys, the, the example they set was in this kind of terrifying and tragic way, it was contagious. People saw that and people who were themselves um, damaged saw that and it sort of created a kind of model that others followed. That's one part of it. The other is, of course, is that you know, you know this better than I do. In this country, anyone can get a gun. If you don't have any, you don't have any rules on who can get a gun. A lot of not, not crazy people are going to get a gun. Like it's nothing terribly complicated about that. You know. Yeah. Um, here, but actually, can I ask you a question? This is something that no one's ever answered to sure. my satisfaction. And I figured, like, if anyone can answer this question, give me an intelligent answer. It's you. In every area of specialty, people who, who have conquered some complicated task 
uh, are in favor of standards for that task. If you're a doctor, you don't let some guy walk off the street and practice medicine. You say, no, 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 no. You want to practice medicine, you got to go to med school for six years and then do your residency and then, right? You know, you can't, you can't become a mechanic without getting a license. You got to know something first, right? I could go on and on and on. And mechanics are the first to say, no, you can't, no, you, you know, this is not a field open right. to just anyone. It's right. like, you got to know what you're doing, right? I can give you a hundred examples of this. No one says you can, anyone can walk into an NBA team and try out for that team. No, it's, it's preposterous. The only area I know where people who have mastered a legitimately difficult art have no interest in creating standards around that is guns. Guns, guns are, it is hard to shoot a gun accurately. It, there's a lot to know about guns. It's a complicated field. It is, there are lethal consequences if you don't know what you're doing. And no one knows all those things better than people who have guns, right? right. And yet they have no interest in doing what everyone else with specialized knowledge does, which is to say there are standards for entering our field. I don't get that. Well, I can. The, the reason being is because they see it as an inalienable right. They see it as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And they root their revisionist, as you talk about this, their revisionist history around the Second Amendment and guns and that belief that there is a God-given right to own them and use them as they wish. And therefore, you can't put these barriers in place outside of some very high bar that doesn't even get followed sometimes. Do you know how hard it is to get somebody to, to be proven to be mentally incompetent? I mean, that yeah. that standard in this country is ridiculously high. But I mean, I guess for good reason. And so that's usually one of the only barriers you can have. But I think you answer this question and you answer your own question in your podcast when you when you begin to talk about how people believe and what they believe the Second Amendment to be about. And how do you yeah. how do you explore that? Well, but here's my thing. What I don't understand is I get that Second Amendment. People have this belief that it's an inalienable right. But I don't. But at the same time, they understand that a gun is a, you know, I, I went one of the episodes I went and I shot an assault rifle with a guy in South Carolina who's a, a gun enthusiast. And, you know, he was a guy who took guns really, really seriously, mm -hmm. who before I even could touch his gun, he gave me 25, he gave me 20 minutes of like, you don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do this, you wear this, we're putting earplugs in, we're going, you know, he was a stickler, completely by the book. But at the same time, that's a guy who believes that everyone has an inalienable right to anyone can walk in and buy a gun. That was a contradiction. I didn't understand why his attachment to the Second Amendment trumped what he knew as sure. a gun owner about how complicated and dangerous guns are. Right? It, it, it's like I don't know. I'm 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 baffled by that. I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's like it's just weird. <laughs> We hear a lot about the NRA's uh, influence waning in this country. Um, but even if the organization isn't what it was, its legacy is clear. And we can't get real federal gun control passed. Red states are doing everything they can to make it easier, to your point. Who has filled that gap left by the NRA? Because the politics of guns are humming along, even if the NRA isn't. Yeah. Well, part of that is, you know, when you look on the on the conservative side in this country, a lot of the traditional institutional sources of conservatism 
falling apart. I mean, what's the Republican Party these days? I don't know. Yeah, nobody not, knows really. Yeah, Trump Trump, Republic- Trump destroyed destroyed conservatism. Yeah. Yeah. And same thing with the NRA. I mean, you go back 50 years, the NRA wasn't even did didn't have a, 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 an absolute position on the Second Amendment. They were about, you know, hunters and yeah. you know, promoting safe hunting practices and so like these organizations morph and change all the time. They lose touch with their constituencies. They I don't even know. I mean, I, I the whole I think that I think probably the crucial thing is just this institutional piece is that somehow there's fewer and fewer parts of this country where um, where institutions play a role in directing people's behavior and thinking. It seems like a free for all. And the free-for-all has come to the NRA. Also, it so happens the NRA itself was, I mean, the guy, the guy, the guy running it wasn't, wasn't exactly the, 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 the cleanest whistle. Or, 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 or <laughs> yeah, he wasn't frugal. He ran it like some of these, uh, anyway, preachers run some of these mega churches. Yes, he was utilizing his dollars for everything. <laughs> Without without spoiling it, your your podcast is a six part series. Can you preview the six episodes for us? And how long did it take you to prepare this series? Took me uh, about seven months. Uh, the first one is a kind of very high spirited look at this big Supreme Court case that came down last year called Bruin and why uh, Bruin versus New mm-hmm. York State, which is this landmark guns ruling. Which is suit if you read. If you read the case, it's so weird. Oh my God, the Supreme Court is weird. I had really read a lot of Supreme Court cases and I started reading them for the first time recently. I'm like, man, like some of them are brilliant and you're like, whoa, right? Um, and some of them are like, you, you you just realize like there are dudes on the court like Alito, you wouldn't have him over, you wouldn't have him over to your house for lunch. He's just too strange. Like you would, you would worry about him around your, you know, around your family. Like yep. I can't. So there's. So I make fun of this Bruin case because they got the right wing got obsessed with this 17th century English merchant named Sir John Knight for reasons that make no sense whatsoever, unless you are some you know weird second amendment. So I have fun with that, and then I do one. Um, uh, I do. I continue on that vein, and I I talk a little bit about uh, the ideology of gun enthusiasts. And talk about how I think they all watched. Do you remember? Did you grow up with Gunsmoke, watching Gunsmoke reruns? I don't know. It was a little bit. Yes, I was a little young, but yes, I (laughs) I am familiar with it. Yeah. So the suggestion is that a lot of people on the right have watched too many episodes of Gunsmoke. And we have a lot of fun figuring out if all you do is watch Gunsmoke, what do you think guns do in America? What do you think the role of guns is? Um, Then I do a what if on, I get into that thing I was talking about, uh, about, trauma care and i i I replay the assassination of robert kennedy and ask Mm -hmm. if he would have lived today um and what that does to our what the fact that doctors are so good means for our conversation about guns um and then i had this weird one in the story about this case in alabama in 20 30 years ago in um in just outside of montgomery between montgomery and auburn um and I go to this guy's 85-year-old guy's house, old plantation house in the Black Belt of Alabama. Um, and it's just the weirdest, strangest, creepiest 
saddest story that I've encountered in a very, very long time. Um, there are parts of, you know this, you're from South Carolina. There's parts of the South where you go there and you feel the weight of, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, I'm not from, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a Canadian, Jamaican. I got nothing to do with the South. Um, I, I have, I remember as a kid, my mom had a friend who moved, moved from Jamaica to Atlanta. And you would think, oh, you know, she's going to be fine. This is in the 70s. She'll be fine in Atlanta. And I remember her sitting in my, uh, coming to visit her, sitting on, my, on her living room in, my, in our house in Canada. And her saying, I, I, I remember this to this day. Her name was Joe Kennedy. She looked at my mom and she said, you can cut the racism there with a knife. Yeah. She had never, she had never seen anything like it. I mean, it's just was, I remember as a kid thinking, I knew, you know, I knew Jamaica. That's where I, that was my black experience. And in Jamaica, you know, the notion of racism is non-existent, right? Where, right. why would you, it hadn't occurred to me that a black person could encounter something so kind of foreign and, and, and hateful. Um, anyway, this is a story. That story is about that. Um, and then the last episode is this really remarkable about this remarkable guy in Chicago. Black guy grew up in the South Side of Chicago and then becomes an ER doctor in the trauma center on the South Side of Chicago. And he treats the guys coming in on the stretchers are the guys he grew up with. And it's his story about how he, and it's heartbreaking. It's the most, one of the most moving, heartbreaking, um, really remarkable uh, guy in Abdullah Pratt, who, um, who I feel we should keep an eye on because if he ever, I think he should, he's the kind of, every now and then, do you, you have this, I'm sure, you meet someone, you think, I say, dude, you should run for office. You, oh, yeah, you got it. You can look at people and be like, yeah, you got it. Yeah, you got to do it because we, A, you're, you're really good, you'd be really good, and B, we need you. I feel like this country needs this guy, Abdullah Pratt. Um, I, I do hope he does that at some point. So, yeah, that's the season. So my, my question to you is a tough one, I guess, but it's like a 50,000-foot view question. What do we do about it all? Um, you know, every time there's a mass shooting or a race-based shooting or whatever it may be, we thoughts and prayers. Um, and we're obsessed with guns in this country and our lives are the cost of this obsession. So can we fix it? And where do we start or how do we start to fix it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think one thing is we have to understand that there's many different problems going on simultaneously. There is a problem of of disadvantaged kids shooting each other. That's one problem. There's a suicide problem, a gun-related suicide problem, which is the biggest of all the problems, by the way. Uh, more mm-hmm. kids, more people commit suicide with guns than shoot each other with guns. There's a mass shooting problem, which is another holy. These are all problems that affect different people, that have different roots to them, um, that have different kinds of solutions. Um, only some of those solutions have to do with, can be solved with legislation. Or some of those problems can be solved with legislation. I mean, you can only think about gun control as much as I'm in favor of it. It can only go so far. Right. Because most of the shootings in this country are are done with illegal guns by people who are operating outside of the law. So, like, what do you do about that? Um, to my mind, of those three, the the two, I don't think we can do that much about mass shootings. I think we can do a lot about suicide. 
Um, suicide is the one that claims the most lives. And I think there's some really interesting, you talked to Abdullah Pratt about what can be done about the epidemic of violence in a place like the South Side of Chicago. You know, he will he'll tell you about, you have to teach kids about how to resolve their distance, differences uh, without violence. And that's a, that is a, that is a skill that has to be mm-hmm. taught. Correct. And it can be taught and it has been taught, but it takes time and it takes effort and it takes focus. And the problem is you get in these cycles. He was talking about, you know, you're in a cycle in a place like the South side where it's all retaliation at this point. It's going back generations. It's like your cousin shot my cousin. So I'm shooting you and our cousins shot each other because their cousins shot each other. And you have to figure out how to break that cycle. And that, again, takes a lot of time and focus and effort. And I feel like the opportunity, though, is that kind of solution is something that should cut across ideological lines. Yeah. I feel like if I think conservatives and liberals could sit down and say, we both want to need to do this. Let's just table all of our other disagreements and let's figure out a way to like to teach these kinds of skills to kids who need those skills. I am hopeful as the father of a four-year-old little boy, four and a half, and a four and a half-year-old little girl, I'm hopeful that that is the case. How, how much does the American history, and you, you've spoken of three amazingly strong countries, the U.S., Jamaica, and Canada, how much does uh, the American history, revisionist history for sure, compared to how other countries' collective memories around gun and the culture that flow from it differ? And how do we mm-hmm. see those differences manifest? Well, Canada is, you know, a, a really interesting counterexample. You walk across the border and the crime rate drops by, the murder rate, sorry, murder rate drops by, I forgot what it is, probably a, probably it drops by 60, 70%. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, like it drops, that. yes, yes, by multiples of, <laughs> yes. Right. But which is crazy because if I didn't, if I plunked you down in the middle of Toronto and didn't tell you where you were, you could easily be in an American city. I mean, uh, let me let me back up on that. Let me let me push back on that because it is Toronto, Peel County. I mean, it's one of the cleanest places I've ever seen in my life. That's true. That's true. It's that's like true. not yes. a lick of trash anywhere. So you would be like, maybe <laughs> right. I'm in an American city, but something has happened here. <laughs> yeah. No, there there's some differences. It would look awfully clean. There, you know, Toronto's a lot more multicultural than a lot of American cities. Uh, you would, you know, you see a lot of Raptors jerseys, so you'd realize something was going on. But, uh, you know, these are, it's the same economic system, you know, it's part of the same, there's so many, but, and yet something as simple as how many times people get shot differs dramatically. Dramatically. Um, And so that should tell you that this is unique to America. I mean, it's one of the many, same thing with, you know, it's funny, I've been doing a lot of things for this book I'm writing on the opioid epidemic. The opioid epidemic, it doesn't happen in Europe. It kind of happens in Sweden and Finland, but at like half the rate it does in America. It kind of happens in Canada, but again, at a fraction of the... You go to countries in Europe, they did not have an opioid crisis. Italy had none. You know, Spain had none. Portugal had none. France barely had one. There's all these things that are strange about this country, and I, I wish it was something... I wish we were more willing to talk about the ways in which we're different because we could learn a lot by 
dwelling on the fact that it that reminds us that it doesn't have to be the way it is, I guess is what I want to say. That's what I think a lot of people just assume, oh, everyone's got these same set of social problems. And it's just not the case. You know? Do you uh I never you saw a, I never saw a gun. Do you have a, a chapter on the crack epidemic in your opioid epidemic uh book and how they are how they how they're treated vastly different from one another? I I did not I have not gotten into that. I they're, they have very different roots because opiate obviously is something that's started by a drug company and right. crack cocaine is something that's started by, but um, no, you can, I mean, listen, I could write a, I could write a whole book on the, on the particulars of, by the way, once you get, start going down the opioid rabbit hole, you never come out, man. I mean, I'm, yeah. it is a strange and we're up to over a hundred thousand people dying a year. I mean, how is this not the only thing we talk about? I'm, I'm baffled and, by but this. It, and it affects it affects everyone, it, it, regardless yeah. of socioeconomic level. It's one of the few things that transcends that socioeconomic mm-hmm. level. Let me ask you the most important question before I let you go. How can people find the podcast and follow you on social media? It's called Revisionist History. It's available on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and I have, uh, I'm, a, I'm an indifferent Twitter user, but sometimes I, I tweet out things. I, uh, only t- I try to tweet out happy things. So um, every now and again, I say something happy on Twitter. Um, but you can find me just at Gladwell on Twitter. All right. I appreciate you. You are an amazing treasure in this country. I love revisionist history. Everybody go out and listen to it. Malcolm Gladwell, thank you for joining the Bakari Sellers Podcast. That was really fun. Thank you. All right.